The end of the state budget crisis, for now. The slots plan is off to the races, but questions remain, and the city income tax debate enters the home stretch. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Kathy Kandiski, Statehouse reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Bill Cohen, Statehouse reporter for Ohio Public Radio. Joseph Moss, attorney and member of the Franklin County Board of Elections. And Marianne Sharkey, public affairs consultant. Before leaving for a vacation last week, I left Karen Kassler with very specific instructions. She and the panel were to resolve the state's budget crisis. Well, what do you know? They did it, with, of course, help from the governor and the state legislature. But did lawmakers actually solve anything? Yes, they passed a $50 billion budget, but the revenue projections are iffy at best, and the budget relies heavily on a controversial plan to expand gambling in Ohio. Kathy Kandiski, we'll look deeply into the slot issue in a moment, but... From a, from a cuts standpoint, how are Ohioans going to feel the effects of this budget? Any particular areas that stand out? Sure. I think, um, think low-income Ohioans maybe will feel it the most um, in ways, uh, services to the poor, um, mental health services to children. Um, parents have called me telling me that they've been told by their therapists that those services are no longer going to be covered by the state. Um, the child, subsidized child care is being, eligibility is being limited. Um, they're reducing the income limits so that fewer people will be on the program. Um, the state's early learning initiative, which is, is uh, preschool for low-income children, trying to get them ready for, to enter kindergarten, has been totally wiped out. I think middle-class people, too. Uh, er actually, everybody's going to see some of these cuts. Notice some of them. The libraries are going to be cut. Now, they didn't do as badly as they feared at one point. They th were looking at something like a 50% cut, and I think the latest numbers are maybe it was only being cut 31%, something like that. But you can see reduced hours at some libraries or uh, closing them one day a week, something like well, that. also cut in higher education, which will... They had to take the lid off in terms of being able to raise tuition by three and a half percent. Now Ohio State said they were going to hold hold the line, but that that increase will be coming down the pike at some point. Yeah, Ohio State and uh, Cuyahoga County Community College Cut. said no tuition hikes right. for the whole year. Other schools for the fall quarter, but all bets are off come the spring, and all bets are off completely come next year. Yeah, and it's sad, you know, and and some of the services are the services for the elderly, those that had been able to avoid to go into uh, a more institutional type of care, and that particular funding is going to be dramatically reduced. Nursing homes, 5% cut. We've heard 30% cuts, 16% cuts for these other departments. Nursing homes, just a 5% cut. They say it'll mean reduced services and possible home closures, but again, the power of the nursing home lobby shows its head there as well. Well, I think, I think actually the nursing homes were cut a lot more than they thought they were going to be. And I do think that the cuts to the nursing homes are, will shake out to a reduction in beds across the state. Now, where those facilities are closed or, or you know, scaled back, we have yet to see. The other cut I might mention, and this is kind of a new one, um, the um, state aid to the non-public schools, your parochial Catholic schools, was cut this year by uh, about 15%, I think. It's the first time uh, since that aid started sometime in the mid-80s that they've actually cut it. It's usually kind of grown or shrunk in tandem with the aid of the public schools, but that was cut this year too. Charter school money was 
going to be cut under the governor's budget much more than it ended up being cut. So the money for the charter schools is, how is that? Is that fairly stable, a slight cut? I think it was just a slight cut, and and, and both the, the charter schools and the, the online schools as well were both kept in the budget and get funded at the same level as the public schools. That was part of the compromise for the school funding plan, which really became overshadowed <laughs> as the slots controversy and the possibility of a tax hike surfaced in the last few weeks of this story. But the school funding plan, the school reform plan is still there. There's no money for it, but it's still well, there. Well, I mean, you can't do all day kindergartens. You can't you know, reduce class size. You can't do a lot of the things that they try to do with it without the money. And that's why they're phasing it in over 10 years. And so I think Governor Strickland is going to be facing this next year in his reelection about what kind of reform did he really bring in and when he said to judge his governorship by his school funding plan. Did he do enough to say, I've done it and I can run on that. My, my, governor, my first term is not a failure because I have reformed the schools. Well, I get a kick out of Chris Redfern. He's the chair of the uh, Democratic Party. He basically said that, oh, the governor said he should be judged on this, and therefore he got a lot of his education reforms through, and therefore uh, the governorship has been a success. Let's go home. Well, I don't think that's how Ohioans uh, are measuring this governor. Uh, the polls have been very clear. They're measuring this governor on the basis of jobs and the economy, mm -hmm. and on that, he is getting not good ratings. People are starting to be frustrated with how he's handling the economy. He's been in two and a half years now, not like Obama, who's only been in six months. So people are starting to blame him for the bad economy. And, you know, he had a 60 plus, 63 percent approval rating just as in February. Mm -hmm. Now it's something below 50. Is he the one who has suffered the most politically through this budget fight and this process? Or is it the legislature? Or is it, can they both blame the economy and say, we're just I, doing the best we can? I think that's exactly what they're doing. I think both are blaming the economy. And I think with some justification, the economy has changed the game, not only in Ohio, but they can look to the other states. And I don't know that any state that uh, has not been touched by this. But that doesn't stop voters from blaming whoever the incumbents are. Well, I don't know. I think the voters will take that into account. Uh, as to to what extent, I think it's still we still have a little bit of time ahead of us. But I mean, you're, it's it's an interesting question. John Kasich is certainly going to blame the governor, and he's not part of the deal here. He's not at the no. state house. He's not really in office anywhere. So he really, truly, right now, is an outsider. And he can shoot arrows and say, you know, when I was in Congress, everything was fine. The, the <laughs> problem, <laughs> the problem, you're right. I mean, the governor has to own it. Um, the problem is Kasich has a plan out there that would eliminate the state income tax, which would wipe out about 35 to 40 percent of state revenues. What he hasn't said is how he's going to fill that gap. So, although I've noticed, Kathy, he's not talking about that anymore. He's, yeah. He kind of dropped it. The, he he floated it out there about uh, eliminating the state income tax, and that. And recently, you do not hear John Kasich saying that anymore. So you're not and I think he got a lot of pushback from Republicans. And, and by the way, Mike, when the governor was in Congress, everything was fine as well. <laughs> you're not going to hear John Kasich saying, "If we don't eliminate the income tax in my first term, my governorship will be a failure." We're not going. Yes. We're not going to hear that promise. Hear anybody well, else say something like that? <laughs> Let's not forget that you know Ted Strickland what did lose his congressional seat for voting for Clinton's tax increase and then he came back two years or four years later so you can see where his memory was <laughs> That's right he's got a good memory real quick any predictions on when the first budget revision will come November November that's soon 
And there'll be all kinds of extra money, right? That's the problem. No, there's going to be no extra money. (laughs) It's up to unemployment's 11%. It's going to be tough for the next couple of years for sure. Our next topic, now on to those racinos, the horse racing tracks with the slot machines. The governor made it happen. Republicans in the legislature backed it sort of. Seven racetracks are making plans to install the slot machines, but questions and controversies continue to surface. Gambling opponents vow lawsuits, and there are questions as to whether track owners can afford the initial licensing fee, and of course, questions about the revenue projections. Bill Cohen, of all the questions that are out there, all the threats to this, which one has the biggest potential to scuttle this deal? Well, I think the lawsuit, because it could wipe out the whole $933 million that Strickland says these slots would bring in. And the opponents of this plan, they've got two pretty good arguments. We don't know how the Supreme Court's going to rule on it. They've got two pretty good arguments. They say the 1973 constitutional amendment that authorized the state lottery didn't authorize slot machines. It couldn't because the voters would never have thought they were going along with slot machines. They just thought of sweepstakes because we didn't have slot machines around the country, except in Las Vegas. And the other thing they argue is, look, the Constitution says all the lottery money profits have to go to schools. Well, under this plan, half of the money goes to the racetracks. So they say it's obviously unconstitutional. Yeah, I had a chance to look at the constitutional amendment because I, I knew that uh, the, the folks from the churches were, were challenging it on that basis. I think it is an argument, but quite frankly, I do think that you can also frame an argument against that in favor of the legislature's and the governor's plan. I don't think it's a shoo-in by any, uh, by any means, uh, I think either way, but I, I would tend to, to think that in, at this day and time that the courts would favor anything that might um, increase the revenue. Can you that's, argue not, that's, not, that's not the, 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 the judgment by which they should be making it, right? <laughs> They're supposed to be ruling on whether this law is constitutional, not whether it might be good public policy no, but or Bill, not. But, but reading it, it is not that clear. I could certainly see judges deciding well, in favor of the plan. the Supreme Court 7-0 Republican right now. So I don't know, you know, if we're talking about politics, I don't know how helpful there could be to Ted Strickland. Also, we have a race for Chief Justice next year. And we have a couple of sitting justices that are already looking at that. So, uh, you know, the issue of doing this without a vote of the people is kind of a populist decision for the Supreme Court to make. Can you argue that they approved the lottery back in 1973, and the games have evolved since then? I mean, you didn't have Keno back then. I don't know what the lottery looked like back in 1973. We have scratch tickets now, and we have... Can you argue that video lottery terminals are just an evolution of games? I think easily. No, as a matter of fact, the way that I read the constitutional amendment is really just granting the state a monopoly in that area, not necessarily prohibiting for for, for the state those activities within. Bill raises a good question. It doesn't cut the racetracks in on that deal. That's for the state of Ohio. That Um, is correct, but I think that the argument is going to be that the revenues do not begin until after the split. In other words, the revenue for the dedication of those funds are after the 50% split. The burden, the problem is for the gambling supporters that the, the opponents can give you five legal arguments why it's unconstitutional. The justices only need to agree with one of them right. to rule yep. the thing dead. Well, I think if nothing else, we've shown that this is going to be tied up in the courts for many, many years, which if you're anticipating $933 million over the next biennium, I, I think it puts that in doubt whether those revenues will ever start to be collected 
if these legal questions can be cleared up. There is a f the fast track provision, so to speak, that sends everything to the Ohio Supreme Court. Joe, well, does that work? jurisdiction is in the yeah. Ohio Supreme Court. That's the reason I was kind of wondering uh, why is you might think that it, it, it does might that be is that, that long. Is that possible? Is that constitutional? Oh, yes, absolutely. You can go, you don't have to go through the... No. Hey, what's the precedent there? I mean, have you seen cases go over that fast? Well, the General Assembly uh, established that that would be the original right. jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But I mean, has it ever done that before? In other areas, yes. Mm -hmm. I know that with res respect to election law, I that is I the case. some utility cases go directly to the Supreme Court, some okay. taxation cases go directly mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court. Many election cases as well. So it's not well. unprecedented to go So we'll see court. how fast but things But it still takes time. Yeah. I think Kathy's correct. You still have to argue the case. The justices still have to decide it. They have to write their decisions. No matter what, that's six as months to a year process. Well, as fast as they would like. Yeah. And the reality is, if you own a horse track, you're not going to invest a whole lot of money until this thing is settled. Even if it's only d delayed by a couple of months, you, that you're not going to start construction till then, and then it's a couple months more, and the winter comes. And, and also, perhaps because you might want to delay because you don't know if the voters are going to approve this big city casino plan that's going to be on the ballot. And if that passes, and you're a racing track, you might have to split your profits. Your profits are going to be watered down. Will this really save the tracks? There's a dog track in Rhode Island, uh, Lincoln, Rhode Island. Just Everything's near Providence in Rhode Island, but it's near Providence. Um, they, the lottery, put slot machines there. The, the, the track owners said this is going to save the dog track. Well, the casino is now bankrupt, and they want to close the dog track, but keep the slot machines. Is this really going to save the horse tracks, or is it going to push them aside? It's happened in other states as well. Oh no, I, I hope and I, I, I fully believe that it will save the, the racing industry in, in the state of Ohio. Uh, I think it has in other places, and we have a chance to see an improvement in the infrastructure, the increase in the purses. I, I do think it will help. I think I there's a provision th in this thing that says you, if, if you're going to have the slots, then you have to have a horse race license. And if you want to have a horse race license, you've got to have horse racing at least some of the time. That's what that casino yeah. in Rhode Island had, though, too, and they're trying to get out of it. Oh, okay. yeah. But I think you've seen in other states that the revenue projections have been, uh, ha the revenues that have ended up coming in have not been as high as projected. I think you've seen that in Maryland and some other states. Okay. Let's get to our next topic. We have two and a half weeks left until the August 4th Columbus income tax vote. This week, City Council Member Andrew Ginther and Columbus on the Record panelist Terry Casey debated the merits of permanently raising the city's income tax. It was a spirited contest. They differed on many issues, including whether the tax should be temporary in place just long enough to get the city through the recession. It would be great. It would be a great political gimmick, wouldn't it, if I came to you and said, hey, you know, I'm going to raise your uh, income tax by half a percent, and I promise you that as soon as things get better economically, I'll cut your taxes. But then what kind of position would that put us in years later when I'm back to you asking for another income tax increase sooner than I should be? If we had a three or a five year period, then you got a chance to see all these promises. Have they kept the promises? Have they done the things they're going to say? If we give them a tax, a blank check, permanent, forever, just in the next 10 years alone, that's going to add a billion one to a billion two to the coffers at City Hall. Joe Mas, wouldn't the temporary tax force the city to make the cuts they promised? Mike, the reality is that going to the voters and asking for, for them to approve an increase is terrible. It's something that no politician wants to do. And if you can get away with doing it once instead of having to do it over and over and over again, 
there are, uh, well, they're going to try to avoid that. Voting is taking place right now as, as we speak. Yep. Um, still two and a half weeks uh, to go for the final day for August 4th. I know the mayor is working very hard. He's met with a lot of constituents, a lot of groups, and everybody in city council is doing the same thing. At the very least, they're doing the right thing. They're going out and talking about it. The city maintains we need this long-term revenue stream. They, they argue that we're way overdue for a city income tax. and. Um, the fact that it's been 27 years since it's happened. You saw that picture. I don't know if you noticed it in front of Andrew Ginther. was a picture of him when he was, I don't know, 12 or something like that something when it like passed. That. He had a Star Wars belt and a 70s shirt. So it's been a while. That's their argument. That we, this is, we need a permanent solution for a while longer. I think that's a valid argument. It has been 27 years, as you note, that they... but. But it, they're asking for it at a, at a terrible time, and it, it's just—it's going to be tough. I mean, it would obviously be an easier sell if it was a temporary tax, or something—you know—if there was some promise of some rollback at some point in the future. But you know, these are the cards they're dealt with. We'll see how the voters respond. Oh, and I think uh, I think our friend Terry Casey was involved in the last increase, wasn't he? It was used yes. against him. He was <laughs> for the tax increase back when he worked for Mayor Moody, and that was pointed out a couple of times during the debate. But the tax opponents this time are noting, even though it's been 27 years since the last tax hike, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the city hasn't taken in a lot more money. Right. I think Terry Casey's saying the the revenue to the city has quadrupled mm -hmm. in the last 27 years. Inflation has doubled, but the money's quadrupled. So you'd think the city would be ahead. We had a we had a fact checker at the debate. The Columbus mm -hmm. Metropolitan Club had a fact checker. Well, he was very useful. He says that's exactly right. The, the revenue has increased quite a bit. And he, he says revenue has increased so much in the city because of annexation. That has slowed in recent years, but the city is left with having to patrol all those new streets, how to, f all, how to lift with having to fix all of those streets and that kind of thing. So that's that's sort of the balance as to, it, yeah, there's it, more money, but there's more money that you know, more, if it, part if it more passes, city to take care of. If it does pass, I think it's going to be passed by voters who really see the, the safety services as the priority and, and see those as spread, spread pretty thin. Well, you asked me to take a look at what's going yes. on in Cleveland, Mary and Ann I did. From so, so um, and the mayor's office, first of all, had an operations efficiency task force, which I came up with tons of recommendations, saving the city close to $29 million. And also they increased fines, fees, uh, increased their forfeitures, um, and they found other ways other than raising the tax, and they have not laid off anybody. They do have a hold on new employment, but they haven't they've had no layoffs and have not closed any rec centers or any city facilities. Did that advisory committee, which is similar to the one here in Columbus, I would assume, that provided this Howarth report that everyone talks about, it, right. that recommended the city look at a quarter of a uh, cent increase or a half a cent increase, did they recommend looking at an increase at all in that no, committee's they did report? Not. It was just no, cuts. No, it was all cuts and efficiencies mm -hmm. that they recommended. W Cleveland's that much better off than Columbus? Well, I can't imagine that they are. <laughs> they certainly have been harder hit, uh, and they don't have all the state government, and they don't have all the you know the landmass of Columbus. So, I think that Cleveland's uh, Cleveland has been hard hit during this economy. I do. I can tell you that I visited with Mayor Frank Jackson, and when I went in there, he only had a little task light on and he had turned off all the lights in his office to save on uh, <laughs> save on energy <laughs> so the mayor himself was doing his part there you go it worked <laughs> speaking of the mayor um, the question i kept getting as i moderated the debate you know off the podium was where is the mayor mayor coleman has has done numerous events but he hasn't done the high profile events the debates the televised debates 
What's going on there? Would you guess? I'll call him right now. We'll, we'll <laughs> ask him, Mike. All right. No, no, he's done plenty of mm -hmm. high visibility things. I mean, I've seen him several times just in the last two weeks. Uh, I, I can't answer it to a specific invitation, but I can tell you that he's probably done about a hundred different forms. Public venues, though. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Where reporters can ask him I, questions? I, I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. It's mainly the audience can ask questions and things like that. It's a PowerPoint display, I understand. And, um, but it's tough. I mean, the politics of this are very difficult. You have to say, you know, I need more money, but I still maybe want your vote down the road. It's a tough political sell, as Joe mentioned at the start, Marianne. Yep, I'm sure it is. All right. We will have a debate here at WOSU at COSI on Thursday, July 30th, live here at our studio, so you're welcome to attend. Please call 292-9678 to register, and uh, we'll air it as a special Columbus on the Record on that Friday, July 31st. Also, if you want to catch the Columbus Metropolitan Club debate, check your digital cable listings. It's also on the CMC website and on demand on Time Warner Cable. Now to topic four. There were a few noteworthy developments in the 2010 Senate race this week. Campaign finance reports show Republican Rob Portman had a good second quarter, raising $1.7 million, nearly twice as much as Lee Fisher raised. He raised about $900,000. But Fisher raised quite a bit more than his Democratic rival, Jennifer Bruner, who raised $228,000. Despite the fundraising differences, polls remain pretty tight, though. Marianne, what do these reports tell you? Well, it tells me that Jennifer Bruner is having a difficult time raising money, and she's got to raise money to be competitive in this race. And she's got to pick it up. And I mean, the Emily's List money does not appear to be coming to her, which is the pro-choice women's uh, money that comes in nationally. And uh, normally, you know, I would assume that Lee Fisher's people have cut off the Emily's List uh, from uh, donating to her. Somehow, I don't know if that's been reported on or not, but it uh, be interesting to find out where that money is. The Plain Dealer had a story where the Bruner campaign was complaining that Democrats were kind of strong-arming other Democrats to support Lee Fisher, and it was sort of anti. They were playing the anti-establishment card, so to speak. Is is that a reality that people are starting to pick well, sides now? I, I think intra-party politics are always tough, sometimes tougher than inter-party uh, politics. So, uh, to some degree, I I think perhaps some of that is uh, is going on. But don't write Jennifer off. It's way too early for that. And she is compiling and has compiled a considerable list of potential supporters. And it could be that some folks are, are waiting uh, for whatever reason. But uh, strong candidate. This just seems to be divided up between uh, kind of the newcomers, the insurgents, and the old guard, the establishment. Fisher seems to have the establishment Good Democrats. Point. I think he got recent endorsements from the UAW and the Teamsters, and those folks can turn out hundreds of thousands of voters. And Bruner seems to get the younger uh, anti-establishment folks, the women's rights people, too. But the polls are pretty tight. I mean, well, yeah. Fisher and Bruner are very tight, and Portman and the, the two of the Democrats are still pretty tight. I think the Democrats have a slight edge, but nothing really to, to brag what about at this point. When Joe, Joe said, don't write Jennifer Bruner off, I totally agree. Despite the advantage Fisher has right now in fundraising, and despite the establishment backing that he seems to also enjoy, they are. They're tied in the polls. So I, I think this race is far, far from over, and I wouldn't count her out in the least. And Bruner points out that Fisher has been a great fundraiser in the past and has gotten a lot of those kind of establishment endorsements in past races and a lot of the times he's lost. And he's lost and she brings that up. But he's always up. won That's his correct. party's nomination in those races. He may have lost to the general but he's always won the party's nomination. Mm -hmm. 
Kevin Coughlin, Republican state senator from the Cleveland area, dropped out of the governor's race, leaving John Kasich clear sailing to the to the general election. Not a huge surprise. Did he burn permanently burn any bridges with his squabble with the state leadership? He told him to butt out. Remember the state mm -hmm. Republican Party leadership. Permanent bridge burning there, or can he make amends? I think he can make amends. Oh, yeah. Clearly, if he's the nominee so. and it looks like he's going to be the nominee, if we mm -hmm. haven't heard any other names jump in there. Um, so, you know, he John will Kasich definitely. The John Kasich, yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the, these polls, as Bill mentioned, shows these this race is tightening. Strickland and Kasich is, is not a double-digit lead anymore. Right. I mean, three, three, four months ago, I think Kasich was behind 20, 25 points. And now it's in, I think, in the single digits. So uh, very close. Well, Strickland's popularity really tanking right now. Huge. Well, tough I mean, times. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the race is really, quite frankly, out of the governor's hands, I think. It, you know, this is a lot of this is tied to the economy. Job loss, as we talked about earlier, is over 11% right now, the highest it's been in 27 years. If that doesn't change, he's going to have a hard time. Yep. Yeah, let's not forget. Yeah, but the governor's also not campaigning against Kasich yet. No. That hasn't happened. Got to get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, predictions for the week ahead. Kathy, you're up first. Well, I, I was going to predict, and I'm still going to predict, that we will be back at, as much as I want this budget to be over, I think we'll be back before Christmas to revisit and plug get new holes. Well, maybe the slots will be decided by then. Like, give us good news or bad news. Bill? Uh, tacking on to that, don't believe a statewide tax hike is impossible. If the uh, racinos are declared unconstitutional and if the economy tanks more, we could have a multi-billion dollar hole. Even in this current two-year budget, uh, they might have to fill it with a tax hike, or especially after this two years is over, almost it looks almost more and more a virtual certainty, a tax hike. Joe? Uh, Mike, I tell you, horse racing, I do think that this thing will happen. And I think that the, the Ohio's horse racing industry has been given a once-in-a-century opportunity here. Don't drop the ball. Upgrade and modernize facilities, increase purses. This will bring jobs and revenues to the state. And well, actually, I was going to say exactly what Kathy said. I think we will be back at the state <laughs> budget by the end of the year. We will be looking at tax increases, and, and uh, we'll be looking at the Supreme Court decision, which I think will come out against this. Well, we're going to try <laughs> not to talk about it for at least a couple of weeks here on this show. <laughs> that is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website. Our question this week, would you support a temporary rather than a permanent Columbus income tax increase? That's at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.